I'm Denzel Mohammed, and this is Jobmakers. Jobmakers launched in March in a time that mixed hope and vaccines to counter COVID-19, a new federal administration, and a continuation of one of the most difficult years for businesses. It is a weekly podcast produced by Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston, and at the Immigrant Learning Center, a not-for-profit that gives immigrants a voice. I'm Denzel Mohammed, and every Thursday at noon, I talk with risk takers, immigrants who create new jobs, products, and services in Massachusetts and across the United States, building on the entrepreneurial spirit that led them to America in the first place. When we return, we'll meet this week's outstanding immigrant entrepreneur. As uncertain as these times have been, certain concepts are becoming clear. That remote working is a viable option for some, that place-based collaboration is no longer always needed, that ideas can thrive even in the most dire of circumstances and America is a place where those ideas can be brought to life. For Max Feingesich, an immigrant who founded ThriveHive, a marketing software company for small businesses, and Telescoped, which uses remote software engineering to connect Latin American engineers with, the, with U.S. companies in need of their skills, the entrepreneurial ecosystem of Boston and Cambridge allowed him to achieve dreams he didn't even know he had when he arrived. In so doing, he can now foster entrepreneurship in his home country of Costa Rica, while bringing much-needed talent to U.S. companies, all the while determining what the future of work will look like. Hey, his fascinating immigration story that extends from Poland and Germany to Bolivia and Costa Rica, as well as his ideas on where workers go next on this week's Jobmakers podcast. So Max, who are you and, and, and what are you doing here? <laughs> All right. Um, well, my name is Max Feingesicht, uh, which probably doesn't give away the fact that I come from Costa Rica. And <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur who lives in Boston, uh, immigrant and son of immigrants. Um, and, you know, I, I love innovating and I love using technology to help uh, positively impact people's lives. And uh, I'm here to, uh, you know, hopefully tell some of my story and uh, inspire your audience. What kind of technology do you generally play with as an entrepreneur? Yeah, so for the last uh, 10 years or so, I've been very focused on software and software engineering. I built my first company in the marketing automation space. So we had a subscription product to help small business owners. And now I'm working with uh, remote software engineers in Latin America and helping them match with U.S. technology startups and, and companies that are you know, building all of the tools that we use online, especially now in, you know, the COVID, uh, new COVID world. So you talk about engineers in Latin America, and I want to dive into that a lot more, but that idea of, you know, across the continent, uh, reach your journey to the U.S. actually started in Poland, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. So my, my grandparents, I mentioned, you know, I'm a family of immigrants. So they, they came from Poland on one side and Poland and Germany on the other side. And, you know, some of them came before the, the war 
kind of exploded the second world war into Latin America, you know, seeking opportunities, finding, you know, a better situation for, for them and their families. And, you know, in, in one of the other side, they, they actually came escaping the war. And so, you know, both of, uh, of my, my grandparents, uh, you know, they were both entrepreneurs and they started companies in, you know, small businesses, which they grew through a lot of hard work and uh, trying to be creative and innovative. And, and that was the example that they set for my father, who was also an entrepreneur. And that was kind of my family, you know, dinner table conversation. It was all about the business and what they were doing. And I, I got involved with that business early on as well. So one side of the family was seeking opportunity. The other one had to flee, right? Yeah, that's right. So the, the one that was seeking opportunity came to Costa Rica. Costa Rica still had their borders uh, open back then, so they could actually come in, become residents, and establish a small Jewish community there. Um, they they were there, you know, in the 30s and uh, brought a lot of people over the years uh, and actually through the, the war uh, time. And then on the other side, uh, from the Germany side, my, my grandmother left uh, right uh, as Kristallnacht. She was in Berlin. Uh, she was the German side. And, uh, you know, she kind of escaped and ended up in Bolivia, actually. So my, my grandparents on my mother's side uh, emigrated first to Bolivia, where they established themselves and, you know, were there for like maybe 20 years. And then they moved to Costa Rica uh, at a very old age and started all over again, started, uh, you know, from, from scratch. So very resilient people, um, very much, uh, you know, thinking about hard work and education as the core of progress and uh, just, uh, you know, succeeding in life. So that's, that's the background. And what kind of businesses did they start? Very traditional businesses. So on, on one side, uh, you know, my grandfather who came to Costa Rica, uh, he went uh, to the United States and actually New York and other places where he connected with other, you know, Jewish immigrants. And he was able to import fabrics and, you know, set up a, a small fabric distribution shop which supplied most of the, you know, different retailers. And uh, it was, uh, you know, prime supplier for fabrics. And that was a company that he started from nothing and uh, ultimately built into a, a very large small business. Um, and then on my mom's side, uh, my grandfather was actually importing carpets. So similar uh, story, very traditional businesses and uh, all kind of based on, on this network of immigrants uh, that, you know, they could help each other out. It's fascinating that in, it was such a long time ago, yet they were able to find these connections and networks and outside of the country, you know, thousands of miles away in New York. That's pretty incredible. I'm trying to picture what it was like for you, for them and for you growing up in Costa Rica. How were you all as, as immigrants? You said that Costa Rica had a sort of open border policy at the time. Uh, were they received and welcomed? Yeah, I mean, they were received and, and welcome to a certain extent. I think the country realized that immigrants, you know, would bring, uh, you know, some positive economic impact. But they were still outsiders, right? They didn't speak the language. They looked different. Uh, it was a different tradition because they were Jewish. And obviously the country, uh, you know, it's a very Catholic uh, Spanish influenced country. And so there, there was a, a little bit of a culture clash, I think, on both sides. But ultimately, you know, I think that um, they, they recognized that they came with good intentions, trying to do good work and to improve everyone's livelihood around them. And so they, they stayed pretty close as a community. And uh, I think that's kind of what uh, has happened uh, even to today. So it's a pretty close-knit community. So I'm wondering if you've ever felt like an outsider growing up. 
Uh, that's a great question. And I have, I, I, I will admit that I have, I feel like, uh, well, first, uh, just, you know, the background being a feeling like an immigrant, regardless of whether I was born in Costa Rica or not, but also just the, the idea of, uh, you know, your heritage and being a small uh, community inside a, a larger place. Um, but also, you know, when I came to the US uh, and I came for school, so I, I mean, I was, um, you know, as blessed as you can be, you know, in a program at MIT with 50% international students. But, you know, the Mexicans had, you know, 10, 12 people. The Venezuelans had six, eight people. I was the one Costa Rican, right? So it's, there's always like, <laughs> you're, you're always a minority in a, in a strange way. Um, and then you got like, you know, this strange last name growing up in a country like, like Costa Rica. So it's not a very Latin American name. So yeah, I definitely feel like an outsider even to today, but I think it might all be more mental than, uh, than anything else. I'm surprised you didn't change your last name to Garcia or something. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, I, I thought of it. Uh, never, never actually did it, but uh, definitely thought of it. <laughs> At least we can all pronounce it. Um, yeah, well, we're going to shorten it to <laughs> like fine, F-A-I-N. It's a little easier. <laughs> um, so even before you got to the United States, you said entrepreneurship ran in your family. It is obviously not uncommon for people who move to another country to start a business. Um, for various reasons. Um, your grandparents were probably in a sense forced to because language barriers not tied into networks there. Um, but they really use the, their ingenuity well to build up a small business into, into larger ones. Um, and you were bitten with that bug early on and actually started a spin-off business from your father's company, right? And it also that yeah, started that's... in China. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So Talk about I mean, making I, I, connections. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned my parents were both entrepreneurs. So my, my mom actually started a small um, programming school at home. So we had like my room was no longer my room. I went to sleep with my brother and there were six computers and she was teaching, you know, young people in the 80s. And, uh, you know, first time into programming and spreadsheets. So I, I really knew I wanted to start something since very, very young. I think that was the example they set for me. But then I had joined my family's business and we were on a, you know, we did a bunch of trips to trade shows in China, Shanghai and Guangzhou and some other places. And this is before like China really exploded. So it, it was still like a, you know, pretty uh, interesting place. Um, and one of the, the suppliers told us that the product we were using uh, for sign making uh, was actually mostly used for construction and for renovating commercial spaces. And so we started learning a little bit more and I decided to, you know, jump into a completely new industry, learn everything from the ground up. And, and I think that's what really makes an entrepreneur, you know, somebody who's not afraid to learn and who sees these challenges as not only opportunities, but also as like an interesting problem to solve. I'm a problem solver at heart. And so I think that that's kind of what drew me to it. And so I started this company in the construction industry, which is actually still running. My brother oversees the operation back at home. And, you know, from, from nothing, we became a pretty large uh, a company that, you know, ended up doing some large government bids and, and work. And, you know, every time I go back, I still see some of the buildings. So even when you moved to the U.S. Uh, to study at MIT, um, you had this idea of being an entrepreneur, but you... You didn't know about networking. You didn't know about the systems in the U.S. You didn't know about raising millions of dollars, did you? Oh, no, absolutely not. I, I feel like all of the education that I've had has really taught me how to learn. Obviously, you know, there's the foundations and uh, some important things that you learn along the way, but you really learn how to learn. And I came to the U.S. I had no idea what venture capital meant. 
I remember having to like take a note and look it up after a, you know the first time I heard it. And the same goes for private equity. Like I had no idea. I was completely uh, you know blown away by the ecosystem in Boston and everything around MIT. And lucky in a way, right? Because you mentioned networks, and you know definitely the the program started that uh, that process. You know, it jump started a lot of my uh, you know career into the high tech space. Otherwise, it would have been a little bit of a different story. Uh, but I, I definitely think that, you know, learning and being willing to tackle new challenges at the moment, you think, you know, it all, uh, you're probably already, uh, you know, losing ground to a, a new innovator who's, uh, you know, somewhere else doing, uh, interesting stuff. Entrepreneurship sort of found you, right? You didn't, you weren't in your basement, uh, you know, trying to start a hedge fund or start a new business. Uh, how did Thrive Hive, your first business in the U S come about? I started with an idea at MIT and that idea failed. And that's another thing I learned, by the way, I should mention that, you know, failing is part of the process and it's a healthy part of the process. So when that idea failed, I was still in school and I had learned to tell all my friends that, uh, you know, what I wanted and to share my ideas and what my interests were. And so a classmate from MIT connected me with a, uh, an MIT alum by the name of Sundar Subramaniam and him and his partner, uh, business, uh, business partner, Manav Anand, had started a very successful company in the 90s. They IPO'd that company. And you know, I, I got in a meeting with them. They were literally across the street from MIT at one main street. Uh, so we, we met and they pitched me this idea of a company that wasn't doing very well and they wanted to kind of refactor that company and rethink what it could become. And they had an analytics engine. And so that's the, the core and the basis of what became Thrive5, this marketing automation company. So it really came through networking, working with other immigrant entrepreneurs, and uh, really being open to sharing your ideas and letting the world know what you're looking for. Because I always thought, you know, if I want to be an entrepreneur, I have to have to come up with an idea and then start it. But actually, a lot of ideas don't start from, you know, uh, from just that. Sometimes you join another team. Sometimes... There's uh, two teams that join and end up building a third idea. So there's like a million different ways in which you can get into the entrepreneurial ecosystem. I think there, there isn't just one recipe. So at least 30 people have to thank you for giving them jobs uh, at ThriveHive. Um, tell us about running that business in the U.S. What was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was uh, the ride of my life, you know, uh, Back then, I like I said, you know, I, I came in 2009 not knowing what venture capital was, and there I was in 2012, just a few years later, raising multi-million-dollar rounds, hiring people, growing a business. Um, we went through an accelerator in TechStars, which was uh, also uh, pretty critical in our in our history. And uh, another immigrant, Semyon Dukac, uh, who was the managing director, had a pretty big influence in 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 me and in what we were doing at Thrive. Five, you know, just setting the right values, making sure that we were managing the business, um, you know, around the right metrics, but also caring for our people. And uh, that's also something that, you know, we always put front and center and people, meaning our customers, our team, our investors, like, you know, in the end, you can build the coolest technology, but if, if you don't put the customer first, if you don't care for your team, uh, if you don't keep your investors happy, then things don't click. Um, so it, it was just a, a wonderful time. You know, we, we were really innovating and uh, building, you know, what I think back then was one of the most powerful solutions to help small business owners, like, you know, what my family had back at home. And, you know, I, I was just thinking of the thousands of people that we could help by putting these powerful tools in their hands. So that, that was the, the real driver behind it, the mission that we were after. And you described that 
this relationship that you have continuing with Costa Rica. Um, I see a sort of humanitarian uh, angle to this, but in terms of a business, tell us about Telescope and what makes yeah, it so absolutely. interesting. Uh, yeah, so after I left uh, Thrive, I, you know, I stayed with the company that acquired us for about three years, and then I took some time off to think about what came next. And one of the things that really resonated with me is that with Thrive, I've, our mission was the most important thing. Like I knew that we were having positive impact in the world through small business owners, and I wanted my next thing to have you know, as much, if not more, impact. And so we saw the, the movement of remote work. And, and that's kind of where, where we saw an opportunity. And our, our mission, our core purpose at Telescope is the pursuit of autonomy, opportunity, and purpose for the talented people of the world. So we're really thinking of, uh, you know, I, I think you were saying this earlier, but, you know, the people that I hired, the people that, you know, were our, our customers, however many people you can impact in your lifetime, I think that's a good measure of success in my book. It's not about dollars, it's about who you can help. And so with Telescope, we're connecting software engineers in Latin America with companies in the US, but our, our model is pretty unique in the sense that we think about it as a new model of employment. So this is not outsourcing, it's actually something different. Tell us about this distinction. We, we, this, our audience really wants to make sure that it's not outsourcing. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So I think that you know the, the biggest insight we had is that Outsourcing, while you know it has been great for many countries, Costa Rica included, you know, it, it definitely limits the growth of the most talented people in the country. You know, you've got amazing engineers who go from one outsourcing firm to the next, and basically, like all of their work uh, is uh, there, there's always an intermediary that blocks them from continued continuing to grow their their careers and their paths. And the reason for that is that the model is based on an arbitrage model. If I can pay an engineer like a mid level job but then you know, sell them as a, a mid or a senior, then I make uh, X amounts of dollars per, per engineer. And then that career path is dictated by the outsourcing firm. Um, people that go to outsourcing companies, they're looking to cut costs, you know, because obviously you would think that abroad, uh, you know, the costs are lower and some of the, the worst projects get outsourced, right? It's the ones nobody, want, nobody wants to do them here. And, and so what we realized is that remote work breaks through that model. And it allows for the engineers uh, in countries like Costa Rica or in Latin America or anywhere in the world to be first-class citizens within their companies for the first time. And the growth of that person is going to be managed by the company that is dictating the work. And everything in between, whether that's you know the, the type of business, the technology, the learning, the mentoring, which goes both ways, it's going to be directed directly between the engineer and the company and telescope does not act as a, as a barrier between the two, but actually as an enabler. So we're doing the matching. So we find the people, we certify them. And then we also understand where they want to go with their careers. Do they want to like really go deep into the tech and become you know, an R&D expert for machine learning? Or do they want to grow as a tech lead or a, you know, eventually a CTO? Like they never have that opportunity with, a, with an outsourcing firm. They just get a project handed and this is what you have to work on. With us, we look at their profile and then we match them with the opportunity that makes the most sense for them. So in a way we are kind of like a, like a sports agent would be uh, for a superstar. We're doing that for engineers uh, abroad. And then companies here benefit from the fact that you know, we are able to find some of the most talented people that will be obviously very loyal because they're getting incredible opportunities to grow. They're working on the most interesting challenges side by side with the smartest and most experimented people. And so they're super loyal, super uh, pumped about what they're building. 
And that's what we want to enable, you know, a hundred thousand times over. And they're getting benefits too, right? Oh, of course. I mean, part, part of what we offer, and this is kind of this new model of employment is, uh, you know, we take care of all of the payroll stuff, but we also not only offer like the standard benefits, we've also realized that for this to work, we need to add something like new things, right? Which uh, might not have existed before uh, in, in the model of uh, just straight up uh, contract work. We give them unemployment insurance and other things that we can pool by having more people in, as part of the network. But now tell me, what was it like launching this business just before a global uh, health crisis? And we never saw that coming, right? Well, I think we were lucky, right? Uh, first technology in general, uh, you know, obviously to a certain extent got spared. Uh, but more than that, um, oh, let's just be 100% transparent here. When COVID, uh, you know, started to become a real threat, you know, around March, April, everything stopped and, you know, hiring freezes everywhere. So all of our sales, uh, all of the pipeline uh, fell through. And that was tough as a business. I mean, we were thankfully well-funded, so we could focus our energy on, on the other side of the network, uh, which was um, recruiting engineers. So people were very uneasy and people were nervous and they were more than willing to put in the time to find opportunities to make sure they have a safety card up their sleeve in case something happened with their jobs. And so we were able to grow the side of that side of the network quite extensively. And then as people moved from, you know, co-located to work from home, companies' mindsets changed. And so all of our prospects and potential clients, all of a sudden that pool became much, much larger. So we're kind of running uh, with those tailwinds now and we're seeing really, really interesting growth. And I think, you know, in the long term, it's going to be the, the year that changed everything for remote work. We kind of had, you know, 10 years of change in, in a single year. You say that. And even on your website, you have a blog post saying that location will soon be irrelevant for companies that employ knowledgeable workers. What do you mean by that? Just a few years ago, admittedly pre-pandemic, um, there was a huge sweepstakes to determine the new home of Amazon uh, and its second headquarters. Has COVID really changed that much about business decisions? Or is the idea that location will be irrelevant just a reflectum of, of long-term trends? Uh, it's a great question. And I think, well, first, let me tell you what I mean by location will be relevant. I think, and bear with me, because this is going to go like a little meta. So the first thing is, I think there's going to be a change towards giving more power to the person, to the employee, to the engineer in my case. And this is going to come from the fact that the moment that you've broken the, the, the thinking and people are not constrained by, you know, how many people are in their city or in their state or in their country, but now you're talking about a global pool of talent, um, all of a sudden you're gonna have marketplaces like you know what I'm building for software engineers, but I think that's gonna happen in many other industries. And the moment that you've got a marketplace with liquidity, so you've got enough companies and enough talent on the other side um, that you can make those matches happen seamlessly, all of a sudden the power dynamics shift. So when you work for a company, the company calls the shots on everything, right? Uh, they dictate everything and then you just abide and the companies are good, you know, they give you uh, good benefits and perks and whatnot. But many times people get stuck and they can't leave that system. When you have a liquid marketplace, you can decide to work for the best company that best aligns to your interests. And that's part of our core mission, if you remember, right? Being aligned with purpose. I'm really passionate about healthcare and making sure people live healthy lives. Or maybe I'm incredibly excited about uh, finance. I mean, some people are like, th there's all sorts of passions, right? 
But now that you've got a liquid marketplace, you can choose to work where you want to work. Um, so when that happens, you actually have um, people that can choose their, their destiny in a way. Okay. Now, when you have people that are choosing where they work, and I might want to live in Costa Rica because that's where I want to be, and the company allows me to work remotely, um, instead of having to set up a second office in Costa Rica, Amazon can hire me directly from, you know, from wherever they are located. So now all of that um, compensation, all of that benefit that I'm getting is gonna get spent in my local economy because it's coming directly to me instead of through a, an entity that has to be set up somewhere. And I think that's gonna change the dynamic of power because now people will decide where they wanna work. I don't know if any of this made any sense, but <laughs> I, no, I, I can. It, it does. And I think everyone wants a sort of crystal ball to determine like, well, exactly what is the future of work going to look like? I want to focus in a little bit more on this relationship you have with engineers in Costa Rica um, and your relationship with Costa Rica in general. I know that you said Techstars uh, helped your company and now you are a mentor with Techstars as well. Are you also uh, mentoring young budding entrepreneurs in Costa Rica? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think a, a lot of what I've uh you know, wanted to do is, is giving back. And that's actually like Techstars, uh, you know, one of core, the core things that Techstars is give back. And so I've been teaching a, a class at uh, the local university where I studied, uh, University of Costa Rica around entrepreneurship, but we open sourced it. So it's all available online so that anybody can, can learn from that. And I mean, in reality, my dream is to have a new wave of entrepreneurship spawn in Costa Rica. Uh, part of that is through, through, you know, teaching part of that is even through what I'm doing with telescope. I hope that some of these engineers are wildly successful in their jobs and some of them are getting equity from these startups. Hopefully they'll have, you know, a, a nice financial exit and they can become the next uh, CEOs and CTOs for a new generation of companies that, uh, you know, will, will thrive in, inside of Latin America. Wow. That's pretty incredible. Um, what is next for you after, I, I, obviously you're still in a startup, uh, but what is next for you beyond telescoped? Well, I think my, that my prediction um, we're back into construction. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, no, I, I really think that you know my my dream uh, coming to Boston. I actually looked back at my application essay to MIT, and it's you know to become a bridge between uh, you know Latin America, my region, and and the U.S. I also think using technology to impact people's lives uh, has always been important to me. So I, I definitely think, you know, teaching and mentoring will always be something that I, I spend some of my time on. I also think that, you know, through Telescope, hopefully we'll be able to, um, you know, set up certain structures for, for teaching at scale. So not necessarily like me teaching everything, but also just bringing some of the the people that I've met running events in Costa Rica that are open, I mean, not just to the telescope network, but to anyone. So if you can have some of that cross-pollination, I think that's incredibly powerful. And then ultimately starting some sort of fund to you know, help young entrepreneurs with ideas, with energy, with uh, innovation, uh, you know, develop those things into viable products that can help people. So that, that's what it all comes down to for me. So being a driving force of entrepreneurship around the world. Oh, that is incredible. You clearly feel strongly, Max, and positively about your native Costa Rica. Uh, your immigrant story extends to different continents, five countries, Poland, Germany, Bolivia, Costa Rica, the United States. Your children are growing up 
in the US, and I know you want them to know about and appreciate where their stories began. But we live in a country and a time where, for instance, it's okay for flags or t-shirts of certain origin countries to fly in front yards or be worn in public, certain festivals from origin countries, but not so for others, at least for some Americans. And that has been the case throughout US history. What to you does an American's identity really mean? Do we need to just like shed our past identities once we land at Logan? Oh, of course not. I think that's the beauty of it, right? Like you embrace uh, the new uh, culture, you bring what you have, uh, you know, your own heritage and you make it into a new thing that is more powerful than, than the sum of its parts. But that's everyone, right? Like we're all playing all these different roles in life, whether it's, you know, as a spouse, as a patient, if you're in the hospital, as a boss, as an employee, uh, as a neighbor, like, you know, you have all of these different roles and, you know, your identity kind of uh, crosses, you know, through all of those. But uh, each one of those uh, relationships, each one of those interactions also change and modify and make you evolve. But that's what's beautiful about life, right? Like you're not a static thing. It's not like, you know, you land and, and then you erase everything that happened before. I think it's the opposite. You build upon it. Thank you so much, Max. That was very, very beautifully said. I really appreciate taking the time to talk to us today on JobMakers. Uh, you've had a, your family's just had a fascinating journey, and it's good to remind people that we can have a complex identity. We can embrace many different things, and it's okay because America allows you to do that, right? Absolutely. I think you know, if there is one place in the world where you know you you can be yourself and you can take, you know, where you come from and mesh it with, you know, your current reality and turn it into something that has the potential of just becoming something unique. America is the place to do that. So I couldn't agree more. Last question. What food do you miss most from Costa Rica? Oh, that's easy. So our, our national food is gallo pinto. Uh, it's super straightforward. It's basically rice and beans. But it's, uh, I don't know, when you have like, you know, your gallo pinto dish, which is rice and beans with some fried eggs and uh, fresh uh, plantain and cheese, you know, that's just wonderful. I wish we had that here. I wish you luck in finding that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Max. I really appreciate it. If you know an outstanding immigrant entrepreneur we should talk to, let us know by emailing Denzil, that's D-E-N-Z-I-L, at jobmakerspodcast.org. So happy that you joined us for this week's inspiring story of another immigrant entrepreneur. Join us again next Thursday at noon. I'm Denzil Mohammed, and thank you for joining us for Jobmakers. Jobmakers.